You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning. I'm Paul Kane, senior congressional correspondent and columnist for the Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Today, our guest is Congressman David Joyce of Ohio, a Republican. He's chair of the Republican Governance Group. We'll get to that later and explain all the details there. But uh, first of all, good morning, Congressman. How are you? Good morning, Paul. I didn't know it was you. It's my lucky day. (laughs) (laughs) Good to see you again. Usually we see each other walking through the halls or outside the uh, on the Capitol steps. But so we're we're here doing this by video this morning. Um, Listen, we got to get to something right away. I know as a as a longtime prosecutor, local prosecutor, you cannot talk about the cases that you would be handling uh, you can't talk about the details of the cases that you would be handling. Um, and that applies to the House Ethics Committee, for which you have recently been named the chair of what's called an investigative subcommittee into the matter of all matters of things related to George Santos. Um, there was a vote yesterday, which sort of was a Democratic attempt to try to expel Santos. Um, and the Republicans essentially re-referred the entire matter to this ethics committee and you know you are you, this little investigative subcommittee is is working what what can you tell us about the process of how this will unfold how how long it will take to to bring some sort of resolution to this is there anything you can get hint at about that because you have colleagues on your side of the aisle saying that this is all going to be done in 60 days so how do you address those those concerns? Well, justice has no time period, first off. And uh, I realized normally I would never comment on about there is some confusion out there as I, I woke up to my cell phone ticking off this morning because there must have been a column somewhere that, uh, that brought this up. So let me get to, uh, and I appreciate the Washington Post because I have voted president in the past and people, well, why would you vote president? Because I, you're going to sit in judgment of the case and it's being referred to you. So I'm certainly not going to go out uh, and speculate as to what the outcome is going to be, because that wouldn't be fair to whoever's appearing before us. So what I've done in uh, in this case yesterday's was to refer it back to the committee because we are, uh, it's out there that we've been investigating this matter. And, you know, believe it or not, uh, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, The, the, Ethics decisions can be bifurcated from those that are criminal. DOJ will uh, will take care of all those criminal matters and those that are considered unethical behavior or conduct on becoming a member of Congress or something that we still have the ability to entertain and and, and will continue to do so. So uh, for for the laymen out there, things uh, things that are called conduct unbecoming, that's sort of a a catchphrase to, to, to deal with matters that Congress doesn't quite foresee. I think there's there's a really big rules book that tells you what you can and cannot do. Um, but then, especially in this new modern technology age, we don't foresee everything that's coming. So there is that sort of phrase where if you are just doing stuff that is unbecoming of a member of Congress, that you can you can met out punishment in that regard. So maybe like faking your entire resume, um, which might not be a crime per se, could also be conduct unbecoming? 
Well, I, I wouldn't get into the substance of any of the allegations because uh, it's not fair to the person who's before you. Sure. And the one thing you want to do, obviously, is, is maintain uh, the dignity of the proceeding. So the, you know, everyone deserves a fair shot. And it, it there's precedent there that uh, go back to Representative Fortenberry or Collins or other folks that they weren't uh, they're still members and were voting even though they were not committees until they were yeah. actually convicted and then they were forced to leave the chamber. The conduct yeah. aspect of this, so it's interesting, Paul, and I made a motion at the end of last year before Rules Committee that we set up a, a standing committee to go through our ethics rules because they were written back in the late 80s, 90s with very few updates. And just think, the cell phone wasn't that active really then, nor was all the social media or the things that are put out there. So, uh, you know, in the rules of conduct, on, on, you know, at that point it had, you can only go on to an event with your husband or wife. Well, let's face it, the world's changed since then as well. So we, we need to adapt to the rules in, in the presence of uh, everyday society. And I'm confident that eventually Speaker McCarthy will get there. He's just had a little bit on his plate recently. Uh, but you know, eventually we'll get the standing committee and update our, our ethics uh, policies and procedures. And uh, it takes into consideration those things that, uh, you know, people can say uh, ignorant things every day, and the First Amendment obviously protects them. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're uh, unfit for conduct or unfit here. That's something that uh, it has to take a little bit more than that, where they bring disdain or contempt onto the House and the members of the House by their actions or their words. So I think it's important that we define what those things are. We, we just had that at the beginning of the year with uh, the Elon Omar case. And you had it in the last session when the Democrats are in charge and they want to take Marjorie Taylor Greene off the committee. It's, you know, we have to define what it is, that, what that conduct is, so people can know and, and, and understand. And that, to be truthful, Paul, that's what got me on the damn committee, was that uh, I stood up on behalf of Marjorie Taylor Greene and said, look, we may not agree with what she said, but she was elected by 750,000 constituents in her district who said that they knew what she was saying and they elected her. Who are we to say, uh, you know, this is uh, not good for us or, you know, uh, not in the best interest of the, the, the Congress. Where do you think the lines should be in terms of behavior that happened before you were a member of Congress? Is that is that you know is that just sort of walled off in terms of uh, whether or not there should be some sort of uh, sanction punishment for for bad behavior that that we realize after the fact when you're already a member? Um, in the case of Marjorie Taylor Greene, you're right. Some of the actions that the Democrats were complaining about went back to 2017, and she wasn't even thinking about running for Congress at that point. But you know, sometimes people take action while they are running for Congress and do certain things that are an attempt to maybe pull one over on their voters in order to get to Congress. Is there a time frame there where you think, well, we should consider that something that House Ethics can look into? Well, I'm a firm believer in the freedom of the press and the media to get to the bottom of these things. I'm personally uh, surprised that some of the things that have come up weren't uh, written about before by, by media uh, on, on people's background. But, uh, you know, it, it is, I, I wanted to think that we should all comport with 
standard rules of ethics and, and common sense. And you know, the way I've managed to hold my seat in a, a purple district is I tell people at home, I'm going to tell you the truth. Good, bad, or indifferent. We can all deal with the yeah. truth. And okay. I, you know, hope I have a, a educated uh, citizens in my district who who make their uh, best decisions based upon the fact that they may not like a certain decision of mine, but they know overall I'm trying to work in the best interest, and I'm working for the 750,000 people I've represented. Now, uh, you know, do they people say things that and they be held in judgment uh, after they're elected and then they get here? That's another thing that we needed to discuss. This is to uh, if somebody's. Uh, you have we're only allowed to judge your conduct after the speaker takes over and and creates the ethics committee and, and starts sets the standards for the year going forward but what do you do with people who have done that uh prior to getting here and that's a very good point one of the other things i raised on why we need a standing committee to review this because uh it's unfortunately happened uh, to us uh, and then it happened to them with elon and so i think uh, we should just declare a truce until we come up with some type of uh standards in which everyone can be measured and understand that they're violating those standards if they if in, if in fact they do gotcha okay on to the policy stuff let's begin with the fact that you are a natural born optimist literally <laughs> literally optimistic because your birthday is saint patrick's day and <laughs> as an irish catholic you can't help but always be optimistic that the glass said, is always half full and there's another bottle around here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> now, can you guarantee for this audience with all that optimism that everything's going to be fine by June 1st? We're going to be fine. The debt ceiling is going to be lifted. There will be some sort of agreement, negotiation. Everything's going to be fine. Or how much of your Cleveland Brown fandom and perennial doom and gloom is still lurking in the background? Uh, you know, I, I believe that the negotiations are taking place to get to an end result uh, to cure the problem with the debt ceiling. And I just saw Garrett this morning when I was working out, he was swimming, I was bugging him while he was taking his swim, uh, you know, to, to go through some stuff. Uh, it's great that I think one of the problems they had up until Tuesday is you had too many uh, chefs in the room. And in order to get to where they need to go, you have talented folks like Steve Rochetti and Shalanda uh, from Young from the uh, president's office. And now you have uh, Garrett, who I have full confidence and respect in. I've worked closely with him over the years. And they both have the respect of their bosses, the president and Kevin. And I believe that Speaker uh, has appointed him for that reason and we have an idea where we're supposed to go it's not going to be exactly what we sent over in the first place and but paul we were the only game in town there was no other offer out there until we passed it and so we passed it and we put in spending cuts come back to us talk to us what what where you can be i mean some of our folks obviously i've heard and read in your columns and in the media that uh, they're being unrealistic that you know that was a starting point and we want more no, that was a starting point, and now you know all, we're waiting for the next volley back, and we're continuing to work towards that. And the June first deadline, you know, that that moved up very quickly after we passed it because no one expected, no one in this town expected us to pass it, and so it passed. And uh, now we, last week we passed the border bill, no one really expected to pass, and so there's some momentum. There, there's there's uh, uh, memory muscle going forward uh, to, to, to allow them to realize that you know we can work and we can function and we can continue to move forward. 
And I hope that the status of this will be making progress towards uh, getting it done by June 1st or putting something in place that, you know, if we need to buy a little more time, gets us beyond there. But I can sincerely tell you that there's, uh, we do not want to fail on the debt ceiling. That's not going to oh. happen. And, and I think it's very okay. important we get to that deal. All right. So that's Garrett, who you're referencing, is Congressman yes. Garrett Graves uh, I'm from sorry. Louisiana, just outside Baton Rouge. For those of you are sort of just tuning in. Um, how unusual is it to have a, a rank and file member like him? Uh, is He's well known throughout your conference and pretty well liked, but he doesn't hold any leadership position. He doesn't, he doesn't hold a committee, full committee gavel. Um, it's kind of unusual to see somebody uh, stepping up as the lead negotiator with the presidential team sort of representing the entire Republican uh, outfit in Congress, House and Senate. Um, how prepared is he for this role? Well, uh, as I tell folks when I'm working around here, you're only ever truly worth your handshake and your word. That's what my father instilled in us. And that's something that, you know, having the trust of somebody, when you build up that trust, Garrett's done that with members, but obviously he's certainly done it with the speaker. And so the speaker mm -hmm. trusts him uh, and believes in him that he'll work in the best interests of our conference in trying to get to uh, the goals. Uh, yeah, he's a deeply talented man. Uh, he's got a flawed sense of humor, but a deeply uh, uh, <laughs> uh, sound man in, in making good decisions and realizing that he's representing you know, the, the need to get to 218 votes. And uh, he's, I've been working with him with the five family structure that uh, the speaker calls it and been working very closely with him and he's very good about keeping you up to date i mean you're getting 2 a.m text from him saying you know this is the status of what's going on so we can then uh get that out to our folks and, and i trust him and i know that the, certainly the speaker trusts him and look forward to getting our results soon all right so you just referenced the five families a perfect transition into what i want to get to next so again there are five ideological caucuses inside the republican conference ranging from the House Freedom Caucus, the Republican Steering Committee of the two really conservative ones. Um, then there is the Republican Main Street Group, which is kind of a sort of middle-of-the-road conservative-ish. The Republican Governance Group, that is what you are the chair of. Uh, it used to be called the Tuesday Group. Let's pretend you're on a flight home to Cleveland and somebody asks you what the Republican governance group, what is that? How do you describe what your your caucus is and what your role is as a leader in those five ideological uh, group meetings? Well, our group is roughly 48 members. Uh, we consider ourselves the majority makers. We run in uh, maybe 10 folks are in a, our group are running in Biden plus districts. So I think it's uh, important because we look at legislation as a group and no one tells each other how to vote or we just want to make sure, and my duty, I believe, as a chairman is to make sure all of our members have the information necessary so they can make an intelligent decision on the vote that's stand for it. And uh, understand the that we got to move forward and we got to continue to move forward. And that we, we, I think we attack legislation in the, with the framework of getting to 218.1 and doing what's its interest in the uh, best best interest of the country because it's important that uh, these individuals have can go home and then you know if their vote 
is getting panned in the media or panned by some of the members of the uh, far right, or as uh, my friend Mario Diaz-Balart calls them, the exotics, that they'll at least be able to have uh, in their uh, quiver uh, enough to be able to take on what's ever coming their way. So our group, our group is, you know, we used to meet on Tuesdays for a brown bag lunch. We've upgraded now because it was, uh, one of us picks up lunch every uh, 48 days or every 48 weeks. So it's not too uh, 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 much of an imposition to buy lunch. Okay. Um, the exotics, that's your, uh, you, okay, uh, Diaz Ballard coined the phrase, you use it a lot, referring to those folks. Uh, you mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, and some of the others that were holding out against Speaker McCarthy back in early January. Inside those five families, how are things going with relating with relation to this debt ceiling? There is a, you know, there's a path here where you could get a bill that maybe has 150 or so House Republicans voting for it. There's also a path where you could see it support kind of collapsing and there's only 30 or 40. What is your what is your own sort of guidepost there of where you want to see the deal come in that can get a real big majority of House Republicans, along with a bipartisan collection of Democrats in both the House and Senate and Republicans in the Senate? Well, uh, I've been one of those 30 or 40 many times yeah. in the past with my seat on appropriations. But uh, and the other thing is Marjorie Taylor Greene was never against Kevin for the speaker. Boebert and, and Gates and those folks were, but, sure. you know, so be it. But it, look, it, the one thing that out of that two months uh, that we, before the uh, January 3rd and those three or four days after, uh, has produced a working group, uh, they call it the five families. And I got to tell you, this is the first time in a decade that we've had uh, situations like we have with HR1 or 2, where you're sitting down uh, with the speaker or Garrett uh, and the five of us and talking through the issues together as a group, you know, and so it's great to have Scott Perry there sitting next to you and, you know, and, and, and he puts in his view of it and, and, you know, speaks very frankly, like, look, I don't, this isn't something my members are going to like. We push right back saying, well, guess what? You know, a lot of our members don't like it either. And through that, start talking about those things we can agree on and sort of put the disagreements on the side and work those in. And we've managed to get to 218 twice and, and it's been pretty successful. And I, again, that, that muscle memory of these folks start to realize that this is what momentum is all about. This is what being uh, in majority is all about. You have to move the bills. I'm hoping, but then again, I'm a Browns fan, Paul. I'm hoping that eventually we get some of our friends to come over and, you know, we start to get on some bills that where we get a bipartisan production. And because as you well know, we take over and we start to take it at the attack in one way and God forbid, but two years from now, the you know, majority moves the other direction and they go in that direction. That's not good for business. That's not good for America. You know, you guys are uh, people at home are making their plans for, you know, six months out, one year, five years out. And you know, here we are trying to get to June 1st. Yeah. So we, okay. you know, we start to develop and get back to where we used to be under the O'Neill uh, Reagan years. Do do you have a favorite scene or character from The Godfather? <laughs> uh, well, I, I, you know, for an Irish kid, I know all of it, uh, all three of them pretty well. But you know, that's why I was giving Kevin the business because he kept talking about the five families. 
I didn't like that idea. I think it's a horrible one. But the five families were two families came together and made an agreement so they would stop fighting with each other. And one time he got up from the room and he, he says, you know, if I see the bag on the table, uh, I'll know that you're with me. And that goes back to Michael with uh, Hyman Roth and the deal yeah. in the van, which had nothing to do with the five families. So I was like, if you're going to start quoting Godfather, at least get it right. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the, the five families end up in a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of shooting. It, it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of strife and, and battle. So uh, are you guys going to be able to uh, be more accommodating than that? Yeah, you know, it, the, the good part is that uh, I will say for you know, the people who are there at the end you know, working these things through, Scott Perry, Chip Roy, all been very honest brokers. They're not in this for, I want something for Scott Perry or I want something for Chip or any of those folks. They're talking about what it takes to move things forward. They're coming at it with the stance that, you know, this is what my district uh, well, thinks is the right move. And you got to explain to them, well, this is what my district thinks is the right move. And let's get here. I mean, no one gets 100% of the way other than my sweetheart, Kelly Joyce. <laughs> the rest of us in this world, we have to negotiate. And so, you know, you don't go into uh, a, you know, buy a car or any situation in life thinking that you're going to get the upper hand. You both walk away a little uh, uneasy. You, know, you might have paid a little more than you wanted to pay and the dealer maybe threw in some extras that he didn't want to throw in, but you got the car and you move on. I mean, that's the kind of negotiation or the kind of things okay. we have to take into consideration. We're all here, elected, duly elected by the people we represent to make this country move forward to do the best of our ability to make it move forward. Uh, you're a member of the Appropriations Committee, and one of the uh, one of the things that's under discussion is trying to set what people call the spending caps deal, which would be essentially the top line numbers for the funding of federal agencies that is really the biggest thing Congress does every year. Um, is, there, is there a length of that deal like three years, four years, five years, two years that you want to see, uh, that you favor, that um, most of the Republican governance group folks would favor? Um, or are you more concerned about the other efforts to bring home work requirements um, in entitlement programs? Uh, that There have been sort of two competing forces here that Republicans are pushing. And I just wonder where do you come down and what, you know, which part of the dial are you focused on uh, for the most part? Well, for appropriations, uh, I think it, 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 we've always held that, you know, the two-year budget cap is, is or, or spending caps, or at least set your numbers and targets so you can move forward. We're not pushing for that necessarily, but not to exceed two years because uh, the appropriations process of putting out that bill year after year is what gives us the oversight. So to say we're gonna do two-year uh, appropriation bills uh, or two-year spending bills, isn't where anybody in, in appropriations world is coming from. With that, that's our job, and every year we're going to make sure that we oversee it. But at least we know what the top line numbers are when you do that. As to the negotiations, look, we started off we're the only game in town. We passed the bill; it moved out. We've gained something already because President Biden said that he would never negotiate. It was going to be uh, clean debt ceiling or nothing. Well, now he's talking about the things that are necessary to put this debt ceiling package together. So we've already won something out of this administration by getting them to the table and then having them put in two people in place that is going to start working on those things and making progress as to what can be done. 
I don't really come into this with any line in the sand that this has to be done or that has to be done. And I don't think any of our members necessarily do. We're waiting to see that those are the things that we put out there. What is the administration willing to offer back uh, to try to get to where we need so they realize? And then certainly, as I said before, Senator Biden, Vice President Biden, he's actually part of the mix when they fix the problems in 11. And now uh, President Biden, he's been in this uh, wheelhouse before, and this isn't new to him. And I think it's important that he remembers that it's going to take that consensus to move forward. And I think whatever think, bill. Go ahead. Uh, I didn't want to cut you off there, but I want to ask you to talk about the National Republican Party um, as things uh, unfold on the bigger scale, the presidential scale. Um, when you look at what's happening in the Republican presidential primary field right now, are you comfortable? Would you like to see more people in this race? Um, you know, we're, you, you know, it seems as if there's one domineering figure, um, one who's sort of standing out on the sidelines, and then a bunch of other characters who've yet to take off. So what's your feeling about this race as it's unfolding right now? No, Paul, I'm not announcing my candidacy today. Ah. <laughs> No, I, I think the field hasn't been set yet. I think it's uh, there's there's a lot of folks out there. There's probably a lot of more folks going to get in. Uh, and the one thing about the, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, although they're being held back because they have a, a sitting president, obviously, but there's a lot of good, uh, strong members uh, in both the House and the Senate and you know throughout the country, the governors that uh, could step up and will make it interesting. And I'll respect whatever the electorate in the primary system uh, delivers for the Republicans uh, and look forward to going forward, working uh, with whoever that is to, to make our country a better place. Are you worried that the party is has been viewed, you know, especially in light of the 2022 midterms, where your folks won the majority in the House, but it felt as if you came up about 10 or 15 seats short of where you could have gone? And then you lost a seat in the Senate and still remain in the minority. Do you worry that the party is being viewed too extremely? And that could be on all ranges of issues, including abortion, including January right. 6th and the 2020 elections. How do you move the party more toward the, the governance group and your worldview? Obviously, the districts are a little bit different everywhere. So that's what the candidates from that district reflect. But I do believe that it's important for us to put out our best candidates into the field and then make sure they have the wherewithal to compete. As uh, friends have said in the past, you know, you raise money for your campaign, uh, not just to raise the money, but so you can tell the truth about yourself because you know the opposition's always going to say, <laughs> tell their version of who you are. And I can tell you, when I ran, I didn't recognize that guy. I don't know who that guy was running against. but uh, <laughs> So I think it's important that we continue to put good people on the field and make sure they have the wherewithal to do it. And there's been some surprise people. Uh, you know, people got in here and they, they looked like they were going to be uh, you know, different than what they've got. When they got here, they proved to be part of the, a working solution rather than the far out fringe. Now, there's some people, as we, you well know, 
who, uh, you know, they'll disagree that uh, it's Thursday and, and, you know, it's nighttime out. And <laughs> they, they, they're just always going to take the opposite position because that's their shtick. They want to they go out there and, and if we're all going in one direction, they'll go the other one and beat their chest. And they're the only ones with common sense here in this town. I like to think that if we continue to do the things we're doing, if we continue to fix the problems here that we see and, and show that we can manage and work government and make it. So now that we can actually put projects on back at home and point to those projects that were getting done, eventually people in their district will say, well, what have you done for me lately? Well, other than being on TV and building yourself up and making us all look foolish, like people think that, you know, how can we be behind you uh, when you're making a fool of yourself every day on TV? I, you know, that has to wear into the mix, too. And, and hopefully that uh, the citizens uh, will in their district will wake up and, and or their state and put in somebody better. Has the party changed? You you ran into uh, 2012 and it was the Speaker Boehner era. Yesterday was the portrait unveiling of uh, Speaker Paul Ryan um, and it was overseen by Speaker McCarthy. How much has the party changed in those 10 years, 10 and a half years since you first won your House seat? Well, certainly I think the party has evolved to, uh, a little farther to the right. Uh, unfortunately, the, the opposition has moved farther to the left, but I think America is always just a little center-right, center-left. I don't think the deviation is that big when you get down to the, the people in our district. As to the speakers, you know, I, I love John Boehner, obviously, being a Buckeye, and, and he was here when I got here, and he, I have the utmost respect for him. Uh, Paul came in. Uh, but I say John was sort of checking out already. He knew he wanted to leave. Paul came in. He didn't want to be speaker. He just wanted to be the chairman of Ways and Means. He was drafted. And yeah, it, it, it takes a certain breed of cat to be the speaker because you're always hurting cats. And so with Kevin, I've seen the most collaborative approach that I've ever witnessed. And I think it goes exactly to Kevin's style, who Kevin is. Kevin's great at not telling you it's going to be this way or that way. He's good on putting people in the room who have conflicting uh, viewpoints and letting them work it out and work to a consensus. And, and so far, it's working very well, and I hope it continues to work that way. And, and he continues to make sure that people are being heard. And people say, well, you know, what's your access to him? I could text him right now, and he'll text you right back. Uh, it may tell you to wait a while. <laughs> I'll get back to this afternoon. But he's, he's always in touch. He's always uh, around to be communicated with, and he's just a great guy. Okay, last question for the, the always hopeful optimist, St. Patrick's Day born, David Joyce. What are, what are the Cleveland Browns going to do next season? What is their record going to be? Uh, what do we have, 17 games now? Yeah. <laughs> we'll be 9-8 and eight or 8-9, eight and nine, I think. Uh, All right. They, they, they'll hopefully uh, enough to get everybody to come back again. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are out of time. We will have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.